Numbers chapter 23. And, and by the way, just after service, if you want to see our float, it's in the back warehouse. You can go back there and kind of check it out. It's coming along very nicely. So Israel is moving forward and finally finding victory in the Lord. No longer are they going to be complainers, although there is still some trials that they're going to have to be going through in order for those lessons of learning. But they're marching forward and they're finally really headed towards the promised land. And we know that this is going to be the group that enters in. But as we are headed towards the blessed Christian life, trials and tribulation are sure to meet us as well. Now, they have achieved some mighty military successes in that they have defeated Shihon and Bashan, and now they arrive at the area just east of the Promised Land, just east of the Jordan River. They are camping in the plains of Moab. This is going to be their jumping-off point to enter into that place of promise that was given to them by God. Well, there's this king, and he sees these millions of people there. He's heard all that's gone on. He realizes that it was God who entered in and delivered them from the hands of Egypt, the strongest nation in the world. And also, he's heard of recent what they've done to Shion and Bashan. And so we see this King Balak. He's king of the Moabites, and he's very concerned. We saw last week, he's of the mindset, well, since a physical battle hasn't worked out well for others, maybe we'll be able to enter into some sort of spiritual warfare with Israel. And we know that's how the enemy attacks because, again, there is the reality of the spiritual warfare. What's the devil seen? The devil seen is the fulfillment of God's promises through his people. And so now he's working through his puppets, if you will. He's working through King Balak and there will be so many others, and Balaam as well. And he's trying to hinder what God desires to do. And again, in a Christian life, we have to understand that the devil, he's lost us. He's lost us on the day of our salvation. But what's the next best thing that he'll be able to do? And what does he desire to do? He desires to render you ineffective in your Christian life. Think about that. God wants to use you. God wants to use you in great ways. Now, what God wants to do, the devil cannot counteract, but he can try to hinder. And so how does he try to do this? He tries to do this by causing me to stumble. Whatever it is that I struggle with, whatever it is that you struggle with, he lays that in our path. He lays it in our path. And so many times we're quick to fall right over it. We're quick to be hindered from the desires that God has. And so the way the devil works, it's not always a direct physical attack, although he does work that way. First Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But if that doesn't work, he'll use a sneaky spiritual attack. Second Corinthians eleven three. but I fear at least somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. And so... He's very crafty. Ephesians speaks of the wiles or the trickery of the devil. And so this king, this king who is of the world, this king who obviously is not of God but more of the devil, he's fearing a physical battle against this God of the Israelites. And so King Balak, he calls upon a known soothsayer living in Pethor near the Euphrates River. And last week, we were introduced to this very mystical man, this man, Balaam. He was a non-Israelite, yet he knew the Lord. He was a mystic or a soothsayer, 
but he understood so much about God. He had conversations with God. And this man is very much a, a dilemma. He's very much, uh, well, it can be very confusing. Is he of God? Is he contrary to God? Well, just because somebody knows God doesn't mean that they're of God, doesn't mean that they're blessed of God. In James chapter 2, verse 19, James says, you believe that there is one God, you do well, but even the demons believe and, and, and they tremble, and I think that's partly of what we see in, in Balaam. Now, he's going to go on to utter some very profound prophecies that we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks, but at the end of his ministry, what was the end of it? He led Israel into immorality, and it even led to his own death. So it was King Balak's plan to weaken Israel at the point of their relationship with God. And then he realized, if I can get at them with the relationship with God, then I can defeat them. The enemy understands that as well. If he can alter God's word, if he can alter our relationship with God, he understands that it's then that we are at his weakest, and then his attacks will have the most effect. And so... Balaam, Balaam is approached, the prophet Balaam is approached by King Balak, and Balak asks him to come and to curse these people. And so Balaam, we saw last week, he asked God if he can go, and what did God say? God said no. God just flat out told him no. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to the place where you ask God something you wanted so bad, you ask God, and God just simply said no? Well, Balak's looking at the financial benefits from this because the king said that he would bless him greatly. And so we have a false prophet here. He's motivated by money, as most are. He presses the issue with God, and God will allow him to go, although it will later on lead to his detriment. Christian concept we looked at last week, when God says no the first time, don't ask the second time. I mean, were you trying to change the mind of God? Do you think God was wrong? Do you really want God to see things your way? When in actuality, we need to be seeing things God's way. We saw the heart of Balaam in the New Testament commentary on his motives in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 12-17. through 17. Now here, Peter's speaking of false teachers, which Balaam is. It says, but these, like natural brute, <laughs> brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. We'll be seen in a couple of weeks that Balaam is going to be killed. Verse 13, And will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deception while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that they cannot cease from sin, Entering unstable souls, they have a, or enticing unstable souls, they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of righteousness. That was his motivation, the wages that the king was going to pay him to curse God's people. But he was rebuked from his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, restraining the madness of a prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now, it was kind of a neat thing. This doesn't really have any bearing on the study tonight, but I'll tell you. Well, I guess it kind of does. 
last week we looked at Balaam's donkey, you know, and that whole thing in the previous chapter. And just as I read Second Peter, I read Second Peter last week, and we just went through that whole study. And then service ended and tried to get out of here pretty quickly because we were going to go visit Jim. And my wife drove home, didn't want to leave the cars here. And so I went to our house and met my wife there. We got into her car. We're pulling out of the driveway. And Tony Evans is teaching on the radio on K-Wave. It was like the exact study. And so Tony Evans somehow has got this place bugged. No, and I'm just thinking, I'm just, no, that's not true. But I'm just thinking, so what does God want to tell me in this? And seriously, now what does God want to tell me? He, he just gave me a sermon that I, I spoke, but now he's reiterating almost word for word. It was just kind of an amazing thing. And we need to consider that. We need to consider that when the word of God goes out because it's powerful. It's that which pierces and penetrates and changes and does a work of, of, of moving us and ministering to us and, and altering us. And they need to be receptive of it no matter who we are. And here we have a man, Balaam, who was contrary to that. Well, I was just thinking, when he didn't hear God's word, he sent a donkey. Did I not hear God's word that night here and then he sent a Tony Evans? I don't know. But we've got to consider these things, again, that nobody would be above these things. And so Balaam, he refused God's no. He thought he talked God into being able to go because he wanted the dough. I just made all that up. But he, he did. He went, and he knows he's going contrary to God. And so now he enters into a great debate with a donkey. And we saw, why would Balaam not be so surprised when his donkey spoke to him? Because he starts having this in-depth conversation with this animal. And really, we need to consider, why would he just go on talking? Well, maybe it was his lust for money that drove him, and he just kind of came, un, well, just overwhelmed by the attack that was going on, his desire to go and to do this work. And so his logic was, was perverted, and that which was common and that which was uncommon, he was unable to recognize, and very much a possibility but maybe it was a possibility as well that maybe it wasn't the first time that he talked to an animal. What do I mean by that? Well, maybe it was a common thing in his soothsaying because the devil, devil spoke in the past through animals. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And so there's the devil through this serpent perverting the word of God. But here, he wasn't, maybe in the past, he, in his soothsaying, he has communicated with the spiritual world through an animal or whatever, and this time God is using that means in order to strike the heart of the prophet and to get his attention. Is it? I don't know. Possibility, though. So what follows as we enter into chapter 23 are four oracles, four oracles or orations, that God gave Balaam that emphasized certain biblical truths about the people of Israel. Or maybe I should say the people of God, because again, we've got to make these things real in our lives. And so the basic biblical truths that are going to be spoken of here, because God is going to speak through this prophet, they, they should have impact upon our lives as well. Because if you're a born-again believer here, you're a child of God. Remember, not everybody's a child of God. 
you'll hear, yeah, well, we're all children of God, but that's not biblically correct. We are not all children of God. Only those who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have the right to be called children of God. Now, everybody is a creation of God, but only those who have been born again are children of God. And so everybody must be born again. There must be that transition from being the creation of God to a child of God. Everybody should be able to mark that day. And so what is being talked about here in Numbers chapter 23 are certain, well, four orations that have to do with children of God. Before we start, there is a commonality between the first three oracles that are spoken here. Each time, seven altars were built on which seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. These altars were constructed on high places that appeared to be used for the worship of the false god Baal. And the worship of Baal, sacrifices were made and some of their inner parts of the animals, this was a common thing of the time, were used for the purpose of divination. Divination is the practice of attempting to hear a word from a god, a small g, god. Now I see this, if you look over in chapter 24, verse 1, the last part, it says that Balaam used sorcery but set his face towards the wilderness. And so he's using sorcery in his attempt to seek out God. And so again, you see the heart of this man. This heart of this man is contrary to God. This heart of this man, Balaam, is evil. The translators, I think, started chapter 23 a little late. If you go back one verse to chapter 22, verse 41, it seems to start there. It says, starting at chapter 22, verse 41, reading to chapter 23, verse 4, So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal. So this is the places where Baal was worshipped. That from there he might observe the extent of the people. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offerings, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height. And God met, and God met Balaam, and he said to him, I have prepared the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. There is a couple of problems right off. What is he doing? He's seeking God in a pagan manner. You saw in Deuteronomy, God said, when you enter into the land, tear down the high places. I'll tell you the place that I am to be worshipped. They were not to worship as the pagans worship. Well, that's what this man is doing. He's going to the high places. The first time we saw that was in Genesis chapter 11. What were they doing? They're trying to build the building up to the sky. It's man's attempt to try and reach up to God. As a matter of fact, Balaam here, he's trying to impress God in verse 4 by what he has done. In his mind, this is how you do it. But he's not seeking God out, how God has told us that he must be sought out. Today, we know how God is sought out. How is he sought out? He told that woman at the well, in spirit and in truth, through the Holy Spirit and in the truth, the truth of God's word. And so that is the means by which I seek God out. It's the God-ordained way. Balak is going contrary to that. Verse 5. So then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So we returned to him, 
And there he was, standing by his burnt offering in all the princes of Moab. And he took up his oracle and said, Balaam, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. There a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and look, you have blessed them bountifully. And so he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? Very rich section of scripture, once again, as we look at God's relationship with his people. It's here that God delivers to this desperate king a series of truths about his people. First one, those whom God blessed, man cannot curse. If you're a born-again believer, you're blessed of God. Ephesians tells you that we have every spiritual blessing. We have every spiritual blessing accounted to us. How could anybody possibly curse us? Again, there's going to be opposition. And again, as you move forward in your Christian life, there's going to be opposition, but never are you cursed. Sometimes you can even be of the mindset that God is cursing you, that God is coming up against you, but God doesn't do that. Now, he may allow obstacles to come up against you. He may allow situations and circumstances for the purpose of growth, for the purpose of getting maybe your lackadaisical attention, but never, never, never does God curse, and never, never, never will God allow anybody to curse you. So those whom God blesses, man cannot curse. Again, verse 11, how shall I curse whom God has not cursed, and how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? True curses are statements of judgment that come from God's throne. God is not going to judge you. He's going to correct you. He's going to change your course from time to time, but he is not going to judge you. That happened upon the cross. Jesus took that upon himself. And so curses, curses do not originate from the minds of men or even the abilities of the devil. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the, in the world. Who, who is he who is in you? The Holy Spirit. On the day that you were born again, the Holy Spirit came and dwelled inside. Why? Because that's God's promise. That's God's, that's God's guarantee of your salvation. I've used the illustration so many times. There was that one day back in 1978. I snuck off to L.A. without my fiance knowing it, and I came back and I surprised her with an engagement ring. And I told her, I want you to be my wife. Now, I didn't just go around asking people to be my wife. And I wanted to make sure that she knew that I was serious, so I sealed that promise with the giving of a ring. And in theory, at least, she was as good as married to me, although we didn't get married for another year and a half or whatever it was. But nonetheless... It, it was a promise, and I sealed that promise with a giving of the ring. So whenever she would look at that ring, she would be reminded that one day we are going to be married. Now, a funny thing about it is, but it does equate to how the Lord works with us. Again, he sealed his promise with the giving of the Holy Spirit. But in our relationship, she got the ring. You know what I got? The bill. <laughs> I had to pay the price. 
We got the Holy Spirit. What did God get? He got the bill, but Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the price upon the cross. And again, really, if you look at it and apply it to your lives, it's really a pretty neat picture. It's a pretty neat picture of the love that God has for you. But, but look at it even a little bit deeper than that, the desire that God has for you. That wasn't just the love that God has for you. I mean, it, it is, but you need to see the passion involved in it. You need to see the desire so much that he would love you to such a degree that he would go upon that cross. And remember, Garden of Gethsemane, that cross grieved his heart. He was sweating blood. He was sweating blood because he knew the way for you to enter into the kingdom of heaven was for him to take sin upon himself. He understood that and it grieved his heart, not the scourging and all, not just an outward expression of that inward reality as he was upon that cross, taking sin upon himself for the first time, feeling that separation. And you look at all that God has done, and do you really think that God would curse you? No, he loves you. How great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And through the cross of Christ, he has lavished. It's as if he has drenched you in his love. This was a lesson that the apostle Peter needed to learn in Acts chapter 10. Here he is a blessed people. He's God's chosen people. But he's about to learn the lesson that so are the Gentiles. And salvation is to go to the Gentiles. And Chapter 10 of Acts, verse 15, it says, And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Or when it says common there, it means unholy. If you are a child of God, you are not a common thing. You are not an unholy thing, but you are a holy thing. God has separated you as his. You have been separated as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. A second basic truth concerning God's people, as God's people are chosen by him, they are then set apart for him. Verse 9, and from the top of the rocks, I see him, and from the hills, I behold him there, a people dwelling alone, not wrecking in itself amongst the nations. They're by themselves out in the wilderness, on the plains of Moab, and when we were in Israel, I've seen the plains of Moab. It's just a barren kind of a flat area with mountains kind of around it. But it's out there. But there they are. These are God's chosen people. And even to the false prophet here, it is something that is very obvious in his sight. This is something that God made very clear some 38 years previously on Mount Sinai. Look at the verbiage in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. Now, therefore, and again, you need to equate this to your life. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people. So, wait a minute. I've got to be obedient and obey his voice. If I don't, then I'm going to be cast out. That's not what he's really talking about. What he's saying here is, if you obey and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure. Then you're going to know. You're going to know and you're going to understand. See, Israel, as they went out into the wilderness, they never really embraced that they were God's people. They never really embraced who God was. And that's why they're always vacillating as they're out in the wilderness. We should have just stayed in Egypt and all of these things. But if they would have understand the magnitude to which God has blessed them and taken possession of them, they would have marched right into the promised land after really about two and a half years. 
but because they couldn't, they didn't. And so God's saying, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me. Think about that. You're a special treasure to God. And you know how imperfect you are. But nonetheless, God still considers you to be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. That was what God was sending his people out into the wilderness with, headed towards the promised land on the first attempt of entry so that they would have a confidence in that. I mean, where are you going from here? Well, most people say, I'm going home, going to bed. But not really. I mean, what you're doing is you're going home, you're going to bed, but then you're getting up in the morning, and then you're going about your Friday, and you're going about your Saturday, and hopefully you go about your Sunday coming back to church. But nonetheless, you don't really know what you're entering into. You don't know what's out there. And, and there's going to be trials, and there's going to be hardship out there. There's going to be blessings out there as well. But the thing about it is that one thing that I do know that is out there, God is out there. God's inhabiting my eternity. He's inhabiting my future. And so I'm entering into what God has for me. And again, Israel should have understood that as they were going into the promised land, as they saw the giants that were there and everything else that scared them off. They should have understood, as big as those people are, my God is bigger. Whatever's going on in your tomorrow, your God is bigger than that. Whatever's going on in your Saturday, God is bigger than all that. So as God's people are supernaturally blessed, how could anybody possibly curse them? Matter of fact, when did Israel receive curses? When instead of being holy and separated to God, it's those times that they desired later on that they wanted to be like the world. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, they told the prophet, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And then Samuel even spelled it out. If God does give you a king, he's going to end up being a curse to you rather than a blessing because... Who could bless more than God? And God, it was God's desire that he would be the king of Israel and they would look to him in all situations and circumstances rather than looking to a man for their provision, rather than looking to, for, to a man for their protection. Look what's happened to us. We, we as a nation have turned our backs away from God and we look to a series of men. And we'll elect one into office and we'll put up with him for a period of time. We'll get tired of him and throw him out and bring the other one in. And again, you're going to hear all these great promises in 2016. They're going to promise you the world, but they're not going to be able to deliver on any of it. Not any of it. Now, again, seemingly things will get better at times, but it's pretty much cyclical. You can read Ecclesiastes chapter 1. That which was is that which will be. But nonetheless, it's truly God that we seek, not any man. Seek after the Lord and seek after the Lord's will and ways in our life. We as the church, we have been described in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his, God's own special people that you may proclaim because you're his special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people but now are the people of God who have not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Again, the decision came across last Friday, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, it was last Friday as far as the gay marriage thing and, and all of that, the Supreme Court. And I remember Saturday sitting there and just kind of contemplating all of it, and what it means, what it means for the church and the repercussions and all of these things. And 
It was kind of getting to me a little bit. You just kind of feel, man, things have just become so dark. But that's not right. That's not right. Yet the world is always going to seek after the world, but we've been called into his marvelous light. But the problem is, when does darkness come into the believer's life? When you're not walking in the light, the light of his word and the light of his will. And again, nothing's changed since last Friday. We continue to push forward. And what did Jesus tell Peter? He told them the gates of hell will not prevail. Gates of hell are not an offensive weapon. It's a defensive weapon. And we're to be pushing against the gates. If we're not pushing against the gates, then we're not doing what God has called us to do. We're not doing what God has separated us to do. When is it that we are cursed? When we desire to be like the world. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The only curse that myself or you can suffer is when we wander off into the world or go after the flesh. And then the third basic truth concerning God's people is their resiliency. They're very resilient. Verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. They're like the dust of the world. They're in every, I mean, check it out, seriously. Israel exists in every nook and cranny in this world, everywhere. I was at my house. We have these Mexican pavers that we put in, I don't remember, probably 20, 25 years ago. We've recently decided that we were going to tear them out. And so one day I went to Home Depot and I rented this jackhammer on this dolly and I had a jackhammer out, I don't know, probably about 400 square feet of tile. It was like torture and took me, uh, I think it was like a day and a half or whatever. Finally got it all out. This was about, it was before we went to Israel, maybe a month before we went to Israel. So it was around in April sometime, something like that. There's still dust. We're still finding dust on the walls. We're still finding dust that is still settling in places because it was all, you know, the cement product and everything. And no matter what you tape off or mask off, the dust still gets just everywhere. And so there's dust all over the place, and we're still finding dust. There's Jews everywhere. There's Jews, and that's what he's seeing, these people, and he's prophesying in the Lord. These people are like dust. They're, they're, They're everywhere, and we can bear witness to that. Yes, they are everywhere. Israel throughout the ages has been as the dust. I put a note in here in my notes that I, at this time when I was doing my notes on Tuesday, I just got a phone call and I just thought it would be, I just, you know, the Lord just had me put it in and I just thought it was very pertinent to what we're we're talking about here. Um, Just as I wrote that previous sentence, the phone rings and it's Kindred Hospital. Kindred Hospital in Ontario. It's a place that people go to to die, basically. And I can hear the machinery going off in the background, and this lady, the nurse, asked me if I could come out. And I go, sure. And I'm thinking, well, I'll be done with my study in an hour. I can make it in about an hour. And she goes, no, that'll be too late. Oh, okay. So maybe in 20 minutes, oh, can you get here faster? I go, well, I'll drop, you know, seriously, I'll drop everything. I'll come right now. She goes, okay. And so I went, and I still didn't make it in time. The lady had expired. But there were her two children, and they had just found out that their they knew their mother was going to die, but they just found out that it happened maybe five minutes before I get there. And so they, I go into the office where they were at, and they said, well, we want to go into the room, and we want to pray. We want you to pray over my mom one last time. Okay. So we go into the room there, and I go, well, can you tell me about your mom? 
But my mom was a born-again believer. My mom just loved the Lord and just lived for the Lord, and it's just been such an impact in our life. And her death was really hard. I, I, it didn't look pretty. It looked like cancer of some sort. And she said, my mom, she really struggled during these last days, but nonetheless, she continued to hold on to her faith. And again, you just never know where you're going to run into people that are going to strengthen your faith through their faith. And again, just as the Israel was like the dust, so was the, the church. So are the born-again believers. You just never know where you're going to go and, and, and who's going to minister. And here I'm going, thinking, okay, how am I going to minister to people who are facing death in the face, they're losing their mother? And I go there, and it's ministry to me. And, and it strengthens my faith just to see people in the face of this ugliness that death is. There was her body that was laying right there, and the, there was still some blood on her face from taking the instruments out and all of that stuff. But nonetheless, they weren't looking at that. They were looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, it's just such a blessing. And you really see the, the essence of what our faith is at points like that. We've got to cling on to that, hold on to that. Because again, there's those times that, that we can get down and there's those times that we can feel forlorn. But God, God's got believers just as truly as he's got, well, dust in every part of the world. In 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are confident yet well pleased to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And so thinking about Israel and this prophecy here, God established Israel some, give or take, 4,000 years ago when he gave great promises to Abraham. What nation is in existence that has been around for 4,000 years? I don't know of any. I didn't look it up, but I just off the top of my head, going through the nations that I know of, I know of no nations that have been around. Maybe you can make a case for Egypt or Ethiopia. I don't know. But other than that, you know, they're second-class nations. Israel is a nation that has been blessed and kept by God throughout all of eternity. And so we have these people in fulfillment of this prophecy that reside in the four corners of the earth. Then it's at this time that he's standing on this pagan mountain that Balaam, he comes to a bit of an understanding here. The last part of verse 10 as he's looking at them. But let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. There's a problem here in that for the prophet. Warren Wearsby said this. He says, you don't die the death of the righteous unless you live the life of the righteous. And that was something that Balaam was not prepared to do. You don't die the death of the righteous unless you live the life of the righteous. Again, I've seen the born-again believer die. And it's been a very intimate time. It's been a very blessed time. I've seen the unbeliever die, and I've seen the despair in it all. I've seen how death just destroys people physically, emotionally, spiritually. The death of the righteous is probably best seen in the oldest written book of the Bible, which would be the book of Job. Job came to this understanding in the midst of his hardship. Song was written about it, so it'll sound very familiar. But in Job chapter 19, verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. So he's speaking only if this could be kept throughout all of the ages. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I will see God. So it's kind of a contradiction there. After my skin is destroyed, in my flesh I will see God. So he had understanding. 
that, yeah, this body's going to die, but I'm going to have a physical presence in the sight of God. Verse 27, whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. Balaam got a little glimpse of that. Didn't personalize it as Job did, but wish I was there, wish I had the promises that they had. Well, Balaam was an unrighteous man, so he wasn't going to, it wasn't going to work for him. But what assurance did Job have? Well, look at Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Those who would have nothing to do of our lives desire with all of their hearts to have our deaths, to have the assurance that we have in our deaths, to understand and to know that God has met us and God ministers to us in this present evil age. And there's a conviction about that. And we're seeing this in the demonstrations that are going on. We see this in the decisions that are being rendered. We see this in, well, the church as it becomes vocal about the decision lately that has been rendered. And you see the, the various opinions and the various attacks against the church. We understand the reality of what God or who God is and what God desires of us. God desires that in this present evil age, that we continue to simply move forward in him. And you're not moving forward in your own power. You just need to overcome your flesh and move forward in the power that God enables you in. Because what is our power? What is the power that God has bestowed upon us? It's a dynamic power. It's not a power for staying static. It's a power for moving forward. And God's people, as they move forward to this point, you got the world looking down upon them. And what is he seeing? He's seeing the hand of God upon his people. And it's the same thing as the world looks upon the church. What is it that they should be seeing? They should be seeing the hand of God upon his people. Father, once again, we just thank you for your word, Lord, and how your word meets and ministers to us. And Father, even during that time when the world, when the enemy is seeking to curse his people, just as we can feel today, it's the reality, Lord, of what you have done in the lives of your people that continues to show through. And so, Father, I lift up those who have come out tonight that you would go before them, that you would bless them, that they would understand, Lord, that we move forward from the standpoint of being more than conquerors or pushing forward already from the standpoint of victory before the battle is even fought. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be setbacks. There's no doubt about that. But, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and enable us to prevail through these obstacles. And so, Father, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, I lift up our float and our opportunity <clears throat> as we pass out tracks and whatnot at the parade on Saturday, that, Father, you would use this to have impact upon those who do not know you or to encourage the believer who maybe has wandered away. And so, Father, we just thank you for our callings, that you would bless us, that you would fill us with your spirit. Use us to your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?